please give it your full attention. Now these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, the of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren, and the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If this is so, why am I this way? So she went in to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment, and his name was Esau. Afterward his brother came forth with his hand holding onto Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was sixty years old when she gave birth to them. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter and a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man, living in tents. Now, Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore, his name is called Edom. But Jacob said first, sell me your birthright. Esau said, behold, I'm about to die. So what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, first, swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, that is red stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we come to you now in the strength and power of your spirit in the name of your son. And we ask that you would give listening to our ears, that you would give believing to our hearts and understanding to our minds. We pray, God, for those who may be here this morning, who may have not ever heard the gospel. We pray that so much would be preached today in this service and that you, by your grace, would draw your people near. We pray, God, that you would give your saints, Lord, strength today as they hear your word and trust that the sovereign plans of God will stand. We thank you for all of this. Lord, I decrease that you may increase, become uh, greater in the eyes of your people, I pray. For Christ's sake, amen. Please be seated. Brothers and sisters, in 1948, the Jewish state was established when the Jewish people were discussing what name their state should be called. They determined that they would continue to bear the name that they had held throughout their rich history, the name of Israel. Israel is the changed name of the man that we have just been introduced to in God's word. Isaac, no, Jacob. Jacob is the name of Israel. Jacob the patriarch. And to this day, the Jews refer to Jacob as their father. Yes, uh, Abraham is also their father. But Abraham, as we learned last week, had many sons. And those eight sons that he had became great nations. 
From Jacob, though, comes the nation of Israel. Therefore, the Jews identify themselves with that historical lineage, the lineage of Israel. When we come to saving faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we also bear the name of Israel. We also see Jacob as our father. When we repent of our sins, when we place our faith in Christ alone, we enter into spiritual life. And therefore we become spiritual Israel, spiritually the sons and daughters of Israel. Uh, what is spiritual Israel, you might ask? Spiritual Israel are the true sons of God. They are those who are not naturally children of Abraham, for that is by ordinary generation. But they are those who are children of Abraham by supernatural regeneration. They are those who have placed their faith in Abraham's greatest son. Children, who is Abraham's greatest son? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is Abraham's greatest son. For the uh, children of Abraham, the true children of Abraham, they are spiritual sons of Abraham. They are spiritual sons of Isaac. They are spiritual sons, therefore, of also Jacob, because our faith rests in the same faith of our fathers. It is in the seed, the skull-crushing seed of the serpent, seed of the woman, excuse me, who will bring salvation and blessings to the nations. Nearly half of the rest of the book of Genesis is devoted to God's dealings with Jacob. And for many of us, uh, Jacob may become, as we study through the rest of these verses and these chapters, he, he may become, if he is not already, one of your favorite characters in the book of Genesis. Why? Because Jacob is a man that the Bible describes as having many sins, many flaws. Uh, there is an earthiness about Jacob. Uh, there's a sinfulness about him that I think many of us, if we were honest with ourselves, can identify with. Listen to some of these things. Uh, even at birth, he will be seeking to gain the upper hand or the upper heel, if you will. He would take advantage of his own brother. He will deceive his own father. He will attempt to match wits with his own uncle. He will be blinded by love. He will seek to buy his way out of trouble. He will have conflict among his children. And maybe this is the one I think that we all can identify with. He will wrestle with God. And he will wrestle with God all night. Until he is left with a lingering mark on his body. From that transformative night. There is much that we can identify with concerning the life of Jacob. And yet, for all of his earthiness, for all of Jacob's sinfulness, Jacob is yet regarded as the prince of God, Israel. The scriptures will even call God the God of Jacob. For all of his earthiness and for all of his sinfulness, God will not be ashamed to be called Jacob's God. Why? I pray that you see this as being the point of the sermon, because 
God has loved Jacob with an everlasting love. God has loved Jacob with an eternal love. God has set his electing favor on Jacob before Jacob could ever do anything good or evil. How? Because God does as he wills. And all that God does is good. All that God does is just. All that God does is perfect. And it, it would appear that this would be the point of the remaining verses of this chapter. And, and maybe even all of the Bible for that matter. That the purposes of God shall stand. That God overcomes all of man's inabilities. And that God oversees all of his purposes in the world to make sure that they will surely come to pass. Brothers and sisters, with God's help, I would like to consider with you three points this morning concerning the purposes of God and how they shall stand. Let's look at our first point. Number one, God overcomes human inability. God overcomes human inability. Look at verse 19. Now, these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Isaac's son or Abraham's son, excuse me. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Brothers and sisters, once again, this section begins with a familiar saying. It is, uh, he, these are the generations. This is called, if you've been taking notes, a toledote. A toledote. Uh, this is an indication that we are moving from one generation to another. We are moving from the generation of Haran, Abraham's father and Abraham's generation, to now Isaac and Isaac's generations. The toledote begins with uh, the tracing of Isaac's lineage. He is the father of Abraham, and he is married to Rebekah. We are told uh, who her people are. For later on in these verses and chapters, we will return to her land. But would you notice that this section begins with a problem? What's the problem? Rebekah is barren, meaning Rebekah is unable to have any children. And isn't that sadly interesting once again we are presented with a woman who is barren unable to have any children where have we seen this before we've seen this in Isaac's mother we've seen this in Isaac's mother Sarah who for 25 years was a one unable to conceive and bear a child it was 20 years for Isaac and his wife Rebecca we know that it was 20 years of barrenness because the Bible tells us that Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah conceived and bore a child. Now, think about this. 20 years of barrenness. And Moses does not give us any details about those 20 years that Isaac and Rebekah prayed to the Lord for children. As a matter of fact, the scriptures almost make it sound like when Isaac is praying... That he's praying almost for the very first time. That Isaac prayed and then the Lord answered his prayer. 
we don't have all of the details about those 19 to 20 years, but here's one thing that I think we can rightly assume. That this was not the first time that Isaac prayed. Imagine 20 years. Scott will be impressed by this. Uh, 200 months of disappointment. 200 months, 20 years of sadness and disappointments, uh, month after month, saying, I'm sorry, dear husband, not this month. Some of you ladies may know the sadness of that. Some of you men also may know the sadness of that. My wife and I knew this sadness for five years, trying month after month only to, at some times, give up and say, I quit altogether. Rebecca knew that a promise was given to Isaac, and it was from his father Jacob, that from this line would come nations, that from their generations would be given land, and ultimately that all of the nations in all of the world would be blessed through the seed that would come through Isaac and Rebekah. That in some way that the promises of God depended upon her bearing a child. Can you imagine the stress and the pressure there? And how confusing this must have been. That we read in the, in the previous chapter how the Lord had sovereignly and providentially and faithfully brought Isaac and Rebekah together. And yet, 20 years have gone by. And the promises of God, they still seem to be falling dead to the ground. Would you notice again that Isaac, or not again, but for the first time, that Isaac does not do at this particular moment what his father Abraham did. You notice that? What did Abraham do when he did not see the promises of God coming to fruition? Abraham takes it into his own power, into his own strength to say, I will make the promises of God come forth. And he does so by sinful means. He takes another woman. He takes a wife, another wife, so that he might bring about physically the promises of God. It was not an act of faith. It was, it was an act of the flesh. Isaac did not take another wife. There is no Hagar in Isaac's story. There is only Rebekah. Isaac did not take the promises of God for granted. He trusted that God would do exactly what he said he would do. He did not seek to be wise in his own eyes. He would not bring about the promises of God in his own strength. No, Isaac was a one-woman man. And Isaac trusted in the Lord with all of his heart. As a matter of fact, Isaac is the only of the patriarchs of Abraham of Isaac and Jacob. He is the only one woman man. He was wholly devoted to Rebecca. Listen to this. In sickness and in health. Might I encourage you men. To have the same wholehearted devotion to your wives. That you be a one woman man. That when your wives look into your eyes. They know. That there is only one woman there. And it is the one whom she is 
seeing in the reflection of her own eye, in your own eye, it is her. That she be the apple of your eye. And might I encourage you to have them and to hold them, whatever the circumstances may be, to display that kind of care and love and devotion to your wives, that kind that Isaac showed to Rebecca. The question we should ask at this time is, but why this theme of barrenness? Uh, God has chosen Abraham and he has chosen Isaac to be the ones through whom the Messiah would come. But he's also chosen two women, and we'll find out later, three women through whom uh, it is, they've found it very difficult to conceive. Abraham is the chosen one, yes, but so is Sarah, and she cannot conceive. Isaac is the chosen one, but so is Rebecca, and she cannot conceive. Why did the Lord determine to choose those, those women that would bring forth the Messiah who would be barren as well? Later we will see that Sarah, Sarah also has a difficult time conceiving. Why the struggle? Why has God ordered all of his purposes in such a way? Brothers and sisters, the plans and purposes of God are often mysterious, aren't they? If we're honest, can't we often sit back and say, God, I do not understand what you are doing. And I think God's response might be, and you never could. And you never could. There may be times when he makes his ways known to us. But there will be more times when his, his ways remain to us a mystery. In this instance, though it is not explicitly stated, we know that this is once again, and maybe for the second time, a test of Isaac's faith. We read in verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife. There is a problem. Re- Rebecca is barren. And rather than going and finding another wife, Isaac does what we all should do when faced with trials and difficulties in life. We seek the one who is sovereign over all of those things. We seek the face of God. I don't understand what you are doing, God, but I will come to you and bring to you all of my misunderstandings. I don't understand what you are doing, God, but I will come to you and bring you all of my confusion. I don't understand what you are doing, God, but I will bring all of my perplexities to you because you alone, you alone know what is good for my life. And we can rightly assume again, this was not the first time that he prayed. But he prays, and he prays on behalf of his wife. Can you imagine what his wife was going through? He prays to the Lord on behalf of himself, but also he prays to the Lord on behalf of his wife. Can you imagine the the struggle and the pain and the difficulty that he sees in his wife? And he goes to the Lord, not only on his behalf, but on his wife's behalf. God, give her strength. God, give her peace. God, I see the difficulty and the pain on my wife's face month after month. God, sustain her as you are sustaining me. It was an act of faith. Do you know that prayer, dear ones? It is an act of faith. It is the means that God has used in our lives to ordain and bring about his promises. It may have been the 1,000th time or maybe the 1 millionth time that Isaac prayed. But the point is that Isaac prayed. 
that he sought the face of God. Isaac in faith believed that the only way that Rebekah would be able to conceive and bring forth the nation that God promised would be that if only God himself heard his plead and answered it. Isaac believed that it was not in his own strength, but in the strength of God. Isaac trusted not in his own ways, but in the ways of God. The plans and purposes of God are true. They are sure. And we must ask in prayer that God's will be done. Dear ones, Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, were sovereignly, listen to this, sovereignly and providentially placed into a hole that they could not get out of without the help and hand of God reaching them out. Oh, God would not do that, wouldn't he? Haven't you in your lives been placed in situations where you say, there is no way out of this unless God himself, by his mercy and by his grace, pull me up? Isn't that what David said? That I waited patiently for the Lord. I was in muck. I was in mire. Then God heard my plea and pulled me out of the muck and mire and set my feet upon a rock. It is what God has done all throughout the scriptures. There is not one man throughout all of God's word who has been able to pull himself by his own bootstraps. Save the Lord Jesus Christ. And he also walked by faith. As they waited on God, they prayed. And they prayed, and they waited on God. Isn't that the, the motif of the Christian life? I am praying, and I'm, then I'm waiting on God. And as I wait on God, I am praying. Some of us are sitting here this morning because someone waited and prayed on, on God. Some of us are sitting here this morning because we've been praying and we've been waiting on God. Some of us are... Some of us are here this morning because someone was praying for us. And it was God alone who lifted us out of that hole. And in the midst of being in waiting and in the hole, we are strengthened by God. Our dependence upon God is becoming even more sure. Where else can I go? What else can I do but trust in him? All self is being removed as I wait in that hole and as God alone is able to pull me up. There is nothing else that I can do. I can either despair or I can trust in him. Dear ones, that's the place where we must all find ourselves. If we are to see and know the goodness and the grace and the love of God. We must come, as my dad used to say, we must come to the end of ourselves if we are ever going to reach the beginning of God. It's the place where we can only say, all I can pray is this, O oh Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Do you know that kind of prayer? Do you know the floor? So well, because you've spent so much time there with your face before God. Do you know all the crevices and all the cracks on the floor? Because you've spent so much time face down before God. Where your only prayer is, oh God, not my will, but your will be done. Have you known the prayer that does not last for a day, but not even for an hour, not even for a month, not even for a year, but for years? And it's the same one. God, help me. 
Not my will, but your will be done. But I need strength now. I've been believing. How long, God? How long must I believe? Well, I think in Abraham. I think in Isaac. And I think even in the Lord Jesus Christ who prayed, how long must I be here? We have a model of this. Don't stop praying. How long, O oh Lord? Don't stop praying. How long shall I endure this? Don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. It is the power of God on display when we are most weak, isn't it? Didn't we say before that, that in, it is in our weakness that God's power is most clear? Therefore, Paul says, then let me be weak. If it is in the weakness, in my weakness, that God's power is most on display, then let me be weak. Isaac prayed. And God, and God alone, after 20 long years, answered his prayer. Why so long? The answer from the Lord is this. So that it can be abundantly clear that this was the work of God and not the work of man. So that there could be no strength left in Isaac's body. So that it could only be said of him when asked, how did this come about? Isaac did not even need to say so, right? All of those who were surrounding Isaac and who lived in his community could only say, this is the work of God. It could only be thus. They said about Isaac, just as they said about Abraham, a man of 100 and a woman of 90 conceiving, this can only be the work of God. Why wait so long, God, so that all of the praise and the glory would go to God, would be unto God. God has overcome man's inability Isaac and Rebekah have been trying to conceive for 20 years. And finally, in God's timing, what they have long waited for, what they have long prayed for, has come to pass. This is the work of God. Isaac's name means laughter. And oh, what a holy laughter there must have been when, he comes, when his wife comes to him and says, Honey, I think something weird is happening to me today. There is something strange going on in, in, in my womb. God has done this. A theme that has been developing ever since the fall is this, that God will accomplish his purposes in the world, not through the strong, not through the powerful, but through the very weakest. He takes the, the foolish and the lowly things to confound the wise, doesn't he? God is determined to provide a way of salvation for a fallen humanity. And he would not accomplish this through people who are strong, through strong institutions but rather he would accomplish this in what is seemingly small and insignificant. That one man would come and live. That he would be born in a stable. That he would be raised in Nazareth, a town where it is said, could anything good come out of Nazareth? That he would be a lowly carpenter's son and that he would follow that trade. That he would find no place to lay his head. That he would be a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That he would suffer the curse of being nailed to a tree. And that God would use all of this, all of these lowly and refused things, God would use all of this to rescue a people that he has loved from the foundation of the world. That he would use all of this to remove the curse of sin and death and God's wrath from our lives. 
that God would use all of these detestable things, listen, so that we might be free. Oh, my friends, this is the work of God alone. Only God could accomplish this. He uses the foolish things to shame the, the wise and strong so that no human may boast in his presence. Isaac prays. Rebecca is with child. They wait long enough so that it would be known that this is from God. Secondly, God's sovereign election. Uh, Isaiah or Genesis 25 verses 22 and 23. Listen to this. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if this is so, why am I this way? So she, so she went in to inquire of the Lord. She also prays. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other. And the older shall serve the younger. Let me say to all of you. Lovingly and pastorally, but also as your fellow brother in Christ. The highest joys are often followed by the greatest of sorrows. Do not be surprised when the peaks of mountains quickly turn into the depths of valleys. Rebecca's joy is quickly turned into excruciating pain. The scriptures tell us that Rebecca is not with just one child, but God has determined that she would be with two children. I don't know if any of you have had twins or know of someone who's had twins. I don't know what that dynamic is like. But there were two children within her. And I witnessed just with my own wife the pain and difficulty of our own pregnancy with our, our second one, Selah. I've seen my wife in absolutely excruciating pain. I've seen her say to the belly, stop it. <laughs> and give Selah a spanking from the belly. But this pain that Rebecca experienced was what one not only of physical nature, but one of spiritual nature. Meaning this, the scriptures tell us that the two children, they struggled within her. Now listen to this. The later language describes that word struggle as skulls crashing their heads together. That's in the book of Judges. It's used to describe the smashing of skulls. The idea that Moses is conveying is this. There are two children within her body. And they are at war. And Rebecca is literally feeling the pain of these two children smashing their heads against one another. The pain of Rebecca is unbearable. In the same way that Isaac prays to the Lord, she follows suit of her husband and she prays to the Lord. She seeks out his counsel, and here's what she says. If it is so, why then am I, am I this way? Uh, another version says, if it is thus, why am I so? Which means this, I don't understand what is going on. This was supposed to be a joyous occasion. But I feel like dying now. Let, let me give two aspects of this. 
Rebecca is on the verge of death. She would rather die than endure what she is enduring. And so she goes to the Lord and says, what is going on with me? Have you known nights where you would rather just die? Knowing that you have been called out of the darkness into the light. And yet, even though you are in the light, sometimes hating life so much that you wish it would just end. I said this in one of my sermons before. There are times when I would love nothing more than to leave the master's work and enter into my master's rest. Oh, Rebecca, Rebecca, pray to the Lord, what is going on? Why is this happening to me? And here's what the Lord says to her. And listen to his exposition. Two nations are in your womb. Imagine hearing that. Two peoples will be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Did you hear that the... the, continuous more explanation of the Lord two nations two people one will be stronger than the other and it will be the younger over the generations there has always been conflict especially in the scriptures hasn't there Cain and Abel the sons of Cain and the sons of of Seth the sons of Noah Ishmael and Isaac Joseph and his brothers brothers and sisters what is this conflict It is the conflict that God promised would be raging between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. The seed of the woman, they are those who are uh, the righteous of God. The seed of the serpent, they are those who are seeds, as, as Jesus says, children of the devil. And they are at war within the womb of Rebekah. This is no ordinary fight. This was a war between the people of God and the people of Satan. You may say, well, that was only for Bible times, right? In every age, there is conflict. And in every age, it is a war against the people of God and the children, the vipers of Satan. You don't believe me? Egypt struggled against the people of God. They wrestled. They crashed their skulls. Herod, listen to this, who was said to be a descendant of Esau, sought to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan raged and struggled against Christ in the wilderness, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and on Golgotha's hill. The Jews, they struggled against the apostles. The Romans, they struggled against the early church. The Roman Catholic Church struggled against the Reformation. The world struggled against the Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening. And today, the current neoliberal, anti-political, anti-Christian political system is struggling against the church and the 21st century Reformation. And this conflict will only be resolved when there is a great separation in heaven between the righteous and the ungodly. In that conflict, we have this promise from the Lord. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not overcome her. Tertullian said concerning the church, he he likened it to uh, a field of grass. He says, the more it, it is cut, the more it grows. That is we, the church. 
The Bible says in verse 23, the elder shall serve the younger. This was unusual in the ancient world. Usually in the ancient world, the oldest was to receive all of the authority and all of the blessings. Do you oldest ones here feel that way? Some of you do. I have an older brother who feels like we are all his servants. Love him. This was surprising. But it is the usual plan of God, isn't it? To go against the norms of the world. God, again, uses the the foolish things to shame the wise. It has been the motif of God, though, to have the younger, the weaker, be the one who is actually the one that God has called. Listen to the, the pattern of the scriptures. Abel, and then Seth, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, then Joseph, then David. God will choose Ephraim over Manasseh again and again and again. The younger shall be served by the older. Carefully listen to me now. This was determined before the children were even born. God had made this decision of who he would choose before they were even born. Paul brought this out in his teaching on unconditional election. That God will choose people not on the basis of what they do or don't do, but on the basis of his own sovereign grace. I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 9. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 9 and verse 9, or verse 6, excuse me. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but Through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not through the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, So that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of the works, but because of him who calls. It was said of her, the older will serve the younger. Listen to this. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. God has done this. God has made his choice before Isaac could or before Jacob could do anything good or bad. And before Esau could do anything good or bad. And he says that I've given my special love to Jacob. But he says that I have hated Esau. I wonder if you've ever wrestled with, how do I explain God hated Esau? Can I say to you, friends, you and I hate. And we hate in fits of rage. Uh, We hate passionately. And sometimes all of a sudden comes upon us. We have passions and they are sinful. God does not behave and act as we do. 
He is not a man like we are. He is the creator, not the creature. Therefore, when the Bible says that he loved and when he hated, it is that God sets his favor and love upon Jacob and that God simply does not set his love and favor upon Esau. We will learn that both Jacob and Esau, they do not actually have wonderful qualities about themselves. Jacob is not a stand-up guy, and that's why God chose him. And Esau is not a despicable man, and that's why God did not choose him. They are both despicable in God's eyes. So why does God choose one over the other? It is God's sovereign choice. It is up to God. God does this. And Paul anticipates a, a rebuke or at least a rebuttal and says, that doesn't sound fair, does it? Is there any injustice with God? Paul anticipates the, the rebuke coming, and, and his response is, by no means. May it never be. What God does and all that God does is good. Election of Jacob over Esau had nothing to do with either one of them because they've done nothing up until this point. Here's the amazing thing. Not that we say God chose Jacob and not Esau, or that God did not choose Esau and that he chose Jacob. Here's the amazing point, that God chose either one of them. That God decided to give mercy to either one of them. Why? God is showing that he is in control. That he has power, that he has authority, that he will give his love to whoever he gives his love to. And we cannot uh, answer anything to God, but let your will be done. Is Jacob more deserving? Not in the least. Romans 9 tells us it was before they could do anything. And is this the point? Or isn't this the point? The point is that. That God's purposes shall stand. Put this in terms of your own lives. You know your heart. You know your mind. Why is God chosen you to be saved. Brother Ray, can you turn the air on, please? Why you? Some of you are even sitting here, and, and, and maybe a sinful thought has passed through your mind as you've been here, and yet you are still here. God has still elected you and called you to his grace. Why you? What good did you do that, that you should have eternal life? What did you do that you should receive such a priceless gift of grace? Answer the question. Some of you have siblings, and you are the only one saved among them. Why you? Well, a friend, you should say, I don't know why me, but I can say this. It wasn't because of me. It was because of God. Because if all of my sins were to be listed, oh, I would once again fall on my face and say, to you alone, God, be all of the praise and glory. I am unworthy of this grace. It's undeserved, isn't it? It's not our giftedness, is it? It's not our intelligence, is it? It's not our toughness, is it? It's not that we were the fastest, was it? It's because of the grace of God. 
His purposes shall stand. Let, let's look at these two people real quick as we close with our third point. Genesis 25, verses 25 to 34. I'm not going to read these again, but I'm going to just tell it to you now. The first, to exit the womb. And if you can imagine this man who, if you were ever in the delivery room, I got to see my, my son and daughter born. The first to come out is a hairy, let me try it again, a red-haired, hairy baby. The Bible actually makes it a, a point to say, hair all over him. And what the scriptures are trying to do is, is give you, first of all, a sense that this is really what the baby looked like. But also to clarify, and it's not very flattering, is it? You know babies that you, you have to sometimes pretend that they are cute. Oh, Gucci, Gucci, goo. And you walk away, oh my goodness, who is that? You know those babies, right? Which is why when some of you say you, you think our children are beautiful, I say, yeah, right. We all say that. We're supposed to. It was almost as, e as if Esau was described as being, listen to this, an animal. The scriptures are intentionally trying to say he looked like an animal. Let me be clear. Moses, again, is saying this is what the baby looked like. The second baby comes out. And he's holding on to the heel of Esau. Uh, they named the baby Esau, meaning red, because of his color. The second baby to come out, he is holding the heel of the red baby Esau, and they name him Jacob. Here's the name, meaning the heel grabber. Or the trickster. Here's another one. Or supplanter, one who trips up. One who trips up. Now, let me ask you this. Is either one of those descriptions of these babies, is either one of them flattering? We've got a hairy red monkey and we've got a little trickster shyster over here. Is any one of those descriptions flattering? Not in the least. Which is why Paul brings out the point, neither one of them are deserving. Neither one of them have done anything deserving of grace. Esau and Jacob will both show that they will live up to their names. That's the point of it. They've done nothing good or bad. One is sensuous, the other uh, led by his passions. The other is a cunning man, led by his wits. Esau will become the Edomites. Jacob will become the Israelites, and they will be bitter enemies to the very end. Even when Israel came out of Egypt, Moses, he, he requests of Edom that they, they are able to pass through their land. He, he says this, brother, your brother Israel, let us pass through your land. We will not pass through a field or vineyard. We won't drink any of your water. We will go along the king's highway. They're asking for passage. And here's what the Edomites say to their brother Israel. You shall not pass through here. If you come through here, we'll come out against you with the sword. This is the later Edomites and the later Israelites. They are always going to be at war. So then we fast forward from infancy to adulthood. Amazing how Moses does this. He does not give us all of the details in between. But rather he goes straight to the point. Why? Because the point of scripture is not to give us all the details. It's to give us that which shows and points us to Christ. Right? 
The only other description that we have of this man, Esau, or Esau is described as he grows up as this. He's a skillful hunter, a man of the field. The only other person who is described as a skillful hunter is a man named Nimrod. Nimrod will become the king of Babel. Moses is intentionally connecting these two individuals. But Esau is a real man's man. He likes to hunt. He likes to be in the field. Whereas Isaac, the Bible says Isaac was a man of the tent. Isaac liked to stay indoors. Many of the ministers who I've uh, read and, and commentaries, uh, some of them have said that Isaac was, uh, uh, that Jacob was a mama's boy. And that Esau was uh, daddy's favorite. Isaac favored Esau over Jacob because of Esau's ability to catch food that he loved, the Bible says. He had an appetite. He had the appetite of his father. While Jacob was described as a peaceful man who lived in tents, but also who was Rebekah's favorite. Interesting point. You have a man of the field and you have a man of the tent. Can I say to you and ask this question, when have you heard of those who are living in tents? Well, we've heard them in the chapters previous to this. It is Abraham. Abraham was constantly dwelling in the tent. And Moses makes the point to say, and Jacob was also a man of the tent. He is connecting Jacob. Although Jacob has not yet been converted, he is connecting Jacob to those sojourners, to those travelers who did not see this world as their home, but who looked unto a world that God was establishing as their home. Rebecca favored Jacob. Esau favored uh, Jacob. Isaac favored Esau. And let me just say to you really quick, I would be remiss to say Parents, be very careful not to show favoritism to your children. In doing so, you may provoke your children to anger, not only against you, but against the one whom you favor over them. There's always going to be one child who you have more things in common with than the other. It's not your job to be your child's best friend. It's your job to be your child's parent. Be careful not to show favoritism. Be careful not to be too harsh of one or too critical of the other. Beware of that. The parents of Jacob and Esau will see their lack of wisdom in their actions in the coming chapters. But Moses takes us to an important day in the life of Jacob and Esau. Let's get to it. You might want to read along or look along. It came about one day when Esau was hunting. Apparently, he, it was an unsuccessful hunt because he returns from the field, possibly from running after animals, failing to catch them, and he is famished. Esau, again, is a man of passions, so he overreacts in his passions. He returns to the field, from the field, and the scriptures present him as someone who believes that he's about to die if he does not eat right this second. You know anyone like that? Dramatic? You know dramatic people? Are you the dramatic ones? Meanwhile, Jacob, now listen to what Jacob's doing. Jacob is conveniently, he's cooking. 
Esau has gone out hunting, he's tired, and, and just conveniently, Jacob happens to be cooking. And he is cooking something that apparently Esau loved. Stew. Children, what's your favorite food? Oh, all of your heads picked up so quickly. You love food. Not just any kind of stew. Children, I don't know if you love stew, but apparently Esau loves stew. And it was a red stew. Lentil stew. Yeah, the Bible says it was lentil stew, and, and the, the scriptures emphasize red, 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 and lentils are red. It was a red stew. Playing on the redness of who? Esau. The redness of his passions that burned for the food that if he did not get it, he would die. And Jacob is crafty, isn't he? He sees this opportunity to take advantage of his brother's redness. His passion. Do you know that throughout the centuries, even after that, those who were red in skin and in hair were seen uh, in a sinister way? Even today, you know redheads and you say, well, you must have a hot temper. It's carried on today. You, it's true. I don't know if redheads have hot tempers. And if you're a redhead in here, naturally, because I don't see any natural. But if you are, sorry. This is not meant to offend you. Moving right along. He says, I will give you this stew if you give me the right to your birth. Meaning this, there's an inheritance that goes to the one who is first born. He receives all of the father's inheritance. Esau has come in and he is famished. I need food. Give it to me now or I'm going to die. And Jacob says, oh, you want some of this food? It's so good. He's... Please, brother, give me some of the food now. I'm going to die. Oh, how bad do you want it? I'll give you anything. Would you give me the right to your inheritance? Yes, whatever it is, just give me some of that stew. If you give me that, I will give you the stew. Fine, swear to it. Now, during this time, to legally start to swear to something made something legally binding. Swear to me your birthright. Now, I'd like to ask you as we are coming to an end, what was the promise of the birthright? What was the inheritance that was given to Esau? The blessing of Abraham. The blessing of land. The blessing of a nation. And the promise that through him, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. Listen to this. Contained within the promise, that blessing, that birthright was the gospel. Esau would have known these promises. Esau would have been taught by Isaac the gospel. He would have been taught that our father Abraham received this promise and it will go to you, Esau. And Esau was his favorite. It will go to you, Esau. You will have nations come from you. You will have this land of Canaan and one day one will come who will bless the nations, who will save us from our sins and bring us rest. Esau knew this. And in the heat of the moment, in the midst of his earthly passions, he evaluated his birthright. He evaluated the blessings. He evaluated the promise of the Messiah. And here's his response. I'm about to die. So of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me first. And he swore to him. And he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread, the red lentil stew, 
The Bible says he ate it, he drank, and he went on his way. Jacob, who once grabbed his brother's heel, has now grabbed the heel of the birthright and snatched it away from Esau. But it's different, isn't it? Esau gave it away. He sold it for red, red stew. It's a tragic ending for Esau. He, he was a slave to his passions, a slave to his physical desires, would stop at nothing to have them satisfied, even if that meant selling the promised blessings of Abraham for a bowl of red stew. The scriptures say that he ate, he drank, and he rose. And what it literally means is that he gobbled up the food. The scriptures are trying to once again say or give a picture of an animal who tears through his prey until he's satisfied. And the narrator, he cannot forget the significance of what Esau has just done in this moment. In this moment of self-indulgence, he gives a commentary on Esau's actions. Listen to what he says. And brothers and sisters, anytime you see the, the writer commenting on what has just taken place, pay attention to that. Verse 34, he says, Thus Esau despised the birthright. If you're taking notes, that's an important word. Despise the birthright. To treat it as worthless. To hold it in contempt. What did he hold in contempt? The promises. The promises. And he knew the promises. There would not be, I'm sure, a day or a week that would gone by in the, day, in the times of worship that Isaac did not remind Esau, his favorite, of what God's promises were to him. Not ignorant of the promise of Canaan. Not ignorant of the promise of a nation. Not ignorant of the promise of the Messiah. Not ignorant of what Abraham saw. He saw Christ. He saw the one that would come through his line and save the nations. And dear congregation, in the moment of heat, when the fire was turned up, Esau... Revealed that he was not a man that cared for the promises of God. That he was not the seed of the woman. But that he actually was a seed of the serpent. What was he despising? The gospel. What was he despising? Let me say that again. The gospel. Though Esau was predestined to this, and Pastor Isaiah spoke about this in our catechism, he freely, from his heart, despised the birthright. Predestination does not turn men into robots. Though he was predestined to it, it was his free and willing choice. That's what got him there. He freely chose to sell his birthright. He freely chose to despise the gospel. The writer of the Hebrews picks up on Esau's actions and says to us this, let there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. We're not taking this too far. Paul said God has made his choice before Esau despised the gospel, and yet Esau freely despised the gospel. We will see this later that Esau goes on against the command of Abraham and seeks out a Canaanite woman to marry Showing that he is uniting himself with those who are not the people of God. Listen to this. Robert Alter comments that Esau's actions shows that he's not worthy of the birthright. Slap, slap, slap. 
Slow your minds down as we, we close. That he's not worthy of being a bearer of Abraham's seed. That he is altogether too much a slave of the moment. That he is not worthy. And it's at this point that we should say, but neither was Jacob. And you would be correct. He's the heel grabber. He grabbed the heel of his brother at birth, and now he is supplanting, tripping up his brother once again. He has manipulated him out of the blessings. He now will obtain the birthright, and he has done so not by faith, but by his own wits, by his own ingenuity. He is ruthless, isn't he? Isn't he ruthless? He's determined to bring his brother down. Sometimes the strongest are not the strongest. They're simply the smartest. He will deceive his own father. And later in the chapters, he will do so with his mom's help. Showing maybe where he got some of his shysterness from. He too is not worthy to be the one through whom the seed would come. And isn't that the point of all of this that I've said? That this is the work of the hand of God alone. That God has done this. That there is no one who is worthy of salvation. It is by the gracious hand of God that we who used to despise the gospel now place our entire hope in it. God has shown that he will choose. That we did not love him first, that he first loved us. We were the ones who were working in our boats. And he called us to join him and to follow him. We were tax collectors and sinners. And he called us from our publican's table. We were rich and swindling the poor. And he called us down that we might dine with him. We were among the religious. And in the darkness of night, he called us to be born again. We were on our way to persecute Christians. And he's shown his light around us. Dear ones, where were you? Where were you when God called you out of darkness and into his light? Were you doing any good? When you were called by the grace of God? How did you earn God's favor? Not one of us can stand and testify to our own righteousness, can we? Not one of us can testify to our own good standing prior to the sovereign election of God. We sing amazing grace, don't we? When was the last time you were amazed by God's grace? When was the last time that you did not run so quickly to the gospel or to the cross, but that you stayed in front of the cross and saw the sin that placed your Savior there? John Owen says this, that we, we run too quickly to the cross. We run too quickly to the gospel and we do not consider our own sin. What was it that placed my Savior there? And when we consider what placed him there, we will be even more so amazed by the grace that he has given us here. He has done this. What a wonderful gift of life that we have in him. It's by grace. Little ones, can I say to you, do you despise the gospel? Are you sitting here this morning 
And have you heard one word of what was said this morning? Are you listening intently that God alone can save you and that you can't save yourself? Little ones, can I say to you, this is not the time when you come to church to write and to doodle. This is not the time to play, but rather this is the time to listen. And parents, it is your responsibility to call your kids as Isaac maybe called his kids to believe in the gospel. Don't despise it. Don't turn from this calling of the gospel of Christ and don't trade it for anything in the world. Life is found in nothing else but in Christ alone. Let us pray.